Hey everyone. First off, we at The Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians and Indigenous peoples of Canada on whose lands we are producing and recording this podcast, and pay our respect to the elders of the Squamish Nation peoples past, present, and emerging. Let's go. Hello and welcome to The Familiar Strange. I'm Sean, your familiar stranger for today. Welcome to the podcast, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's College of Asia-Pacific and College of Arts and Social Sciences, Australian Centre for Public Awareness and Science, and produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. Today I'm speaking with Yasmine Rana. Yasmine is Assistant Professor of Cultural Anthropology and Development Sociology at Leiden University in the Netherlands. Her research is characterized by a critical look at the contemporary society in which discussions on gender, race, ethnicity, religion, embodiment, and movement take center stage. She has published on Muslim women, sports diversity, and cultural heritage, and decolonizing anthropology. Her recent publications include the journal articles Gender and Skillment, Becoming Women Through Recreational Running, and Secular Religious Self-Improvement in the Senses and Society and American Ethnologists, respectively, as well as her recently published ethnography, Punching Back, Gender, Religion, and Belonging in Women-Only Kickboxing, published by Brigand Books. Yasmine is currently a Marie Curie Global Fellow at University of California, Berkeley. In this episode, we talked about how Muslim women's participation in sport is often viewed as a form of secular empowerment, which derives from the assumption that there is an incongruence of Islam with the modern secular nation-state. Yasmine counters this assumption by showing how young Muslim women construct gendered and religious subjectivities in and through the practices of kickboxing. In this episode, she highlights gender-separated spaces for women-only kickboxing as places where piety may be enacted and negotiated. Finally, in this episode, we discuss how gender, in its full spectrum, lives in the everyday, which includes sports such as swimming and recreational women's-only kickboxing in the Hague, Netherlands, where Yasmine conducted her ethnographic investigations for her monograph, the topic of today's conversation. Before we dive into today's interview, did you know we have a Facebook chats group? Join us on the Familiar Strains chats on Facebook and provide some valuable insight on today's interview. So here it is, my interview with Yasmine. Yasmine, thank you again for taking the time to come on to the podcast today and have a chat about your your new book. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you. Your latest ethnography, your first ethnography in your monograph uh, that's just recently come out this year, uh, Punching Back, Gender, Religion, and Belonging in Women's Only Kickboxing, published by Brigand Press. An absolute fascinating read, a wonderful crafted piece of ethnography, theoretically enticing, but also a real page turner when it comes to the ethnographic context and material that you provide in the lives of the, the women-only kickboxing. Thank you so much. I'm very happy to hear that you enjoyed reading it. Yeah, it was, it was fantastic. Maybe we'll just start off before we get into the book. I want to know a little bit more about how you got onto the topic of women's-only kickboxing and a little bit about your own background in, in sport and sport anthropology for some of our listeners. 
I grew up as someone who did not like sports, actually. So I'm very different from most sport anthropologists, I think. I grew up as someone who uh, was, who likes to read and go to the library and do arts and crafts. And, and I was not so much interested in sports. I was actually, you know, was... Um, um, in elementary school and high school, I was the person who tried to slack off as, as much as possible. So the one who, who when we had to run a lap, make sure that uh, you could run a lap less than anyone else, for example. So sports was really something that was a sort of a topic that I knew from my brothers and also um, my sisters a little bit, but mainly my brothers who were interested in sports and who were engaged in sports. And it was something that I was not motivated to do both not from my own like my own motivation but also not from my parents like okay if you want to read and do music do you do you do you basically but i got interested in it during my bachelor's in anthropology actually already when i was working and living with moroccan dutch mainly moroccan dutch muslim migrant women working in clubhouses how do you call them in english community centers yes exactly so so during my bachelor, I uh, was working a lot in community centers with Moroccan Dutch Muslim youth. And um, at one point, one of the leaders of the community center said, well, you should join us in a kickboxing class one day. And I, and I joined out of personal interest, sort of like, okay, so this is something I would never do. Let me just try it. So the moment I started doing it, it was immediately a research topic for me as well, right? I think that's the... The trained anthropologists already already start thinking, aha, so what does this mean? What does it do for people? Why do people actually do this? And why kickboxing and not other sports? So yeah, I've been I've been interested in sports really as a as a topic of like academic interest more than from than a personal interest. And it it became personal at one point and I'm really I mean I I, I engage in sports every day almost now. So it sort of changed me also. But yeah, so I, be I became a kickboxer and an ethnographer of kickboxing at the same time, basically. And yeah, so it took me a while to, to know exactly what I wanted to do uh, with it. But after my master's in anthropology, um, where I focused on uh, ladies-only fitness gyms in, in Morocco, in Casablanca, um, I tried to get a PhD position to, to do this research on kickboxing, which I ended up doing in um, Berlin the Freie Universität Berlin, and, and more particularly at the Berlin Graduate School for Muslim, Muslim Cultures and Societies, where I was finally able to pursue this as a research project as well. Oh, fantastic. Thank you for outlining that and giving us a little bit of the background. Um, you actually, you, you know, right at the, the beginning of your ethnography um, that you you take an experiential uh, ethnographic approach using using apprenticeship. It, that's quite interesting that, you know, your own academic practice has crafted your your sporting practice in a way. I think that, that is interesting. I don't I don't think it happens very often. I think um, mm. um, I, I like to together with the girls and women that were doing kickboxing. I learned to embrace sports as something that is part of my life, right? So um, and and they are and there was some still some age difference, of course, between us, but they were in the same situation in which. It is, uh, they considered sports as something that the men in their families do or the men in their neighborhoods do. Um, so coming to this understanding that, okay, so this is something that we can do and embrace in a way 
that fits our lives and the purpose, right? So it's not only about becoming a, a competitive athlete, but actually finding a nice hobby for yourself and um, um, experiencing the benefits of, of, of doing physical exercise, of, of being in a group of like minds. Um, I, I really experienced that together with them, basically. Oh, fascinating. And for those who have yet to read the ethnography, around what age were the were the women that you were who participated in these uh, kickboxing groups? Um, how how old were they? Right. So so I I've been kickboxing in many different gyms since I started. Like with the little seed of in being interested in kickboxing, I started in Amsterdam. Also did some kickboxing in. Um, um, in Rotterdam and other cities in the Netherlands and also in Berlin, um, but my main research, like for the for the um, for the PhD and also what the the main research um, that forms the basis of this monograph, um, was in The Hague and more particularly in the in the southwestern uh, neighborhoods of The Hague, and um, the the monograph is based on on two gyms in um, adjacent neighborhoods. And one was a gym where mainly young girls and young women um, joined. They were between the age of, I would say, 12 and 18, I think. And um, maybe there was an outlier a little bit older, which also like had, had like a very different atmosphere than the second gym where I went to, um, where there were more uh, women and not only girls. So there still were girls between, I think, um, 14, 16, um, but the majority was actually a little bit older, so between 16 and 25. And there were, again, some outliers. Um, they actually had a specific program where they had like a mother-daughter discount. So you would, they would actually say, bring your mother with you and she would train uh, for free or bring your daughter with you. Um, so it also ha- we also had some... some um, yeah, some mom, moms present, which was like, again, a very different atmosphere, a very different kickboxing practice also than uh, compared to other gyms. Oh, fascinating. That's really interesting having the uh, the, mother da- the mother, daughter, the, the, the family coming together and, and kickboxing and, and practicing in, in sport together. Yeah, absolutely. And it also like sparks uh, conversations about diet, for example, and food and mothers bringing candies the first day and, and, and switching to oranges at a certain point, for example. Right. So that's uh, that's wonderful as well. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> the classic uh, orange slices at uh, halftime in, in soccer or, or football games. Yeah, uh, I remember from, from growing up, certainly. Exactly. With the context of uh, this woman's only kickboxing, these two gyms in, in The Hague, you point out in your ethnography that um, there's a tension between the discourses of both empowerment uh, and integration and the use of sport within Dutch um political and recreational discourse, as well as in, in European policy. How did this tension manifest and how do these policies affect the young Muslim women um, that you were kickboxing with? Right. So I think um, I think what has been very important for me in, in this monograph is to, is to situate the, the gyms, to situate the gyms very particularly in this broader social context and the, the historical genealogies, the political tensions that have um, made Muslim and, and Moroccan um, Dutch youth and, and, and women also um, more particularly as an, an, an object of media discourse of scholarly attention and, and state intervention and um, by by focusing on 
how these gyms are part and sometimes very particularly part of sport programs and policies, but sometimes just part of a larger discourse, um, you see that there is a process of racialization going on of youth in sport and neighborhood policies and how there is this vicious uh, circle being created for Moroccan uh, Moroccan Dutch or Muslim Dutch or what they call allochtone um, uh, youth in, in, in the Netherlands. Um, so you see, for I mean, I've I've been studying some some specific programs and some specific policy documents on sports, especially in the 2010s. There have been particular programs for particular minorities who did not engage in sports as the white majority, uh, middle class majority, you you might say. So there were particular um, programs for uh, Moroccan youth, but also for uh, Dutch Caribbean youth. Um, also for um, LGBT youth, for youth with disabilities. So you have all these kind of of different um, programs. And you, if you would read, closely read those policies, you actually see that there, uh, well, sometimes very explicitly, there is a developmental um, ideal in integration through sports programs. So this, there's this idea that if those problematic Moroccan youth would finally engage in sports and engage in, in, in these associations. They would not only have a healthy lifestyle, but they would also integrate into society. So the membership of an association is, part, is, is partly seen as membership of society. Um, but you see that there were some some racialized discourses within within these programs, right? So so I, I I think I quoted some examples where kickboxing was seen as a way of um, getting Moroccan youth off the streets, right? So instead of them being violent um, in the streets, let's get them into a kickboxing uh, ring. On the other hand, you would see that that women in particular were uh, were, were were getting pushed or asked to do the same sport for a totally different reason, which is empowerment. So the idea is that and there is this, this underlying assumption that Muslim women are disempowered, that they are submissive, that they're not free, uh, that they're housebound, and kickboxing would give them a way to empower themselves. And um, it's not that I don't believe that kickboxing can be empowering or sports can be empowering. I do think it's problematic if we think that kickboxing is more empowering than other sports, then I would say then maybe like field hockey, for example, which is a very Dutch um, uh, women's sport, or tennis, maybe other sports. But there is also an, an, an assumption that when young Muslim women engage in sports, that that might help them move away from religion. I think that I think there's a general assumption in the Netherlands and in Western Europe more broadly that that women's sport is a form of secular feminist empowerment, um, and and the problem is that is that this assumption starts from the premise that Muslim women's participation is incongruent with it shows the incongruence of Islam with the modern secular nation state, and. So with the book, I basically try to contest this view by, by looking very closely at how the young women, um, how, how their lives unfold, both inside and outside of uh, the gym, and showing them that, showing that they're aspirational subjects, but not only in this very white feminist way of thinking about what empowerment is. But empowerment can also be 
a religious form of empowerment. Right. And one particular example that you you give, which I caught on to immediately with my own background in, in swimming, was an example of the uh, separation of genders um, in swimming in the Netherlands. So in, in 2009, you had, you know, women's only and men's only spaces for swimming in, in public rec centers. And this is a very normalized practice in Canada now, at least on the West Coast of Canada, um, where you'll have uh, women's only spaces for uh, for swimming, where the blinds will be and the windows will be blacked out and you'll have a, a female lifeguard. When it comes to men's only spaces for swimming in public rec centers that's i haven't seen that as often i would say um but it's interesting you that you use that example and the shift in discourse for this being more of a i guess a, a multicultural sort of attitude um allowing people to to engage in sport and physical activity through their own religious sensibilities to having a very different discourse in 2010 um from the government saying that this you know, sport must be a tool for integration of everybody. And it must be sort of, I guess, gender equality across the board, because that is a, the dominant ideal. And then linking that to these ideas of, of disempowerment and, and integration. Right. And, and I think the right wing politics that are on the rise across the world are, are, um, um, are partly the reason for this, right? Or especially in the Netherlands, where and especially The Hague, which has a um, um, which is has quite a um, right wing. The the the, um, the municipality is quite on the, the right wing of this of the spectrum. I would I would say, um, and but you also see it like in 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 the newest um, policies, both on a municipal and governmental, like a national governmental level. Separation is seen as as segregation. So if you want to strive towards integration or I don't know inclusion, then that cannot be in separate groups. So while swimming in in um, and women only swimming was an option in in before two thousand ten, at at the moment it is it is not. And some people are are trying again to have some like uh, women only sessions, but the municipality of the Hague is quite strict and says well not not with municipal money. The interesting thing about these kickboxing gyms is that they're all private enterprises, right? So there's no, especially now after after that um, that large like policy program of time for fighting sports that I mentioned in the book. After that, there's there's no funding left for combat sports in particular. But these organizations, these kickboxing gyms, are able to to pro- to provide for their neighborhoods without any funding uh, just by asking for subscriptions to their gyms um, but also prizes for uh, their, their professional fighters who win prize money um, so they can do whatever they want basically right so they can have women only i i do think that that this is an important discussion within our societies right so how do you and it's a discussion that i mean we've been having forever and ever basically how do we do emancipation and within combat sports, there are some interesting discussions as well. There are some scholars in sport anthropology that would say, well, kickboxing is actually, or not kickboxing, but martial arts um, could be the sport that actually breaks away those boundaries of gender, right? Because in, in, in professional or in, in competitive kickboxing or, um, or MMA or, or other martial arts, you actually work with weight. So if you have weight categories, why do you still need a category of gender, you might say? So a man and a woman of the same height, same weight, could have an equal fight. You don't have to separate both the um, the training sessions, but maybe even not the competition, which is true. 
At the same time, for many women, it really lowers the threshold to engage in sport at all, if it is women only. They would not join if it's not only women. But this is, I mean, this is an age-old discussion about emancipation within one's own group or within a larger society, right? And I think especially in societies where you feel marginalized, where you feel unsafe, um, where you feel like you cannot be... Uh, yourself in the way that you want to dress or in the way that you want to express yourself it's very important to have groups where people can emancipate among themselves and that actually gets me to jump on to how these young women negotiated and and navigated you know their own participation particularly in light of you know these these different ideas about empowerment or disempowerment and integration and seeing you know women as vulnerable and the boys and, and young men as potentially violent and racializing them. You say in, in the monograph that these young women, they, they play with gender, right? They, they play with different forms of femininities and, and masculinities. And you use a, a particular term, forms of, of female masculinity. Could you expand on this and, you know, how the, the women thought about this or, or engaged with this, this idea and topic? Yes. Um, yeah, maybe first of all, like, like Halberstam's term of female masculinity is mainly used in LGBT queer studies. Um, it is mainly used for lesbians, right? And to demonstrate how there is a form of female masculinity within people that play with the boundaries of gender and sexuality. But there's, there are not a, people, a lot of people who think about female masculinity within cisgendered heterosexual subjects. Halberstam mentions it in their book, which is why I thought, okay, so this is actually something that we could we could look into. I started thinking about this because girls and women in the gyms that I that I trained at, they do talk about like being in touch with your masculine side, right? So why do we talk about being in touch with your feminine side and why can we not be in touch with our masculine side? So it's it is something that that they play with actively and they, they explain also, like they explain how they were tomboys for example when they were younger they explain how they don't like to be a girly girl a meisje meisje as they say in dutch so they do play with ideas of masculinity and at the same time there's there's quite a lot of girls who say well this is something i like but why would it would i call it masculine why is wanting to fight enjoying fighting why would that be masculine so i, I guess it, it is a bit controversial that i do call it fem female masculinity right some of them might not agree with me because they would say well this is a, this can be part of femininity so and i think by using the words femininity and masculinity it, um it gets you into the trap of thinking okay so this is masculine and this is feminine and i definitely do not want to do that um but faith, the concept of female masculinity does help me think about, okay, so what is it, how are these gendered and sexual subjectivities, how are they actually crafted in terms of clothing, like so choosing to, to wear a certain, certain dress both in the gym and outside of the gym, and how do they counter certain forms of masculinity? For example, many of them are happy to be tomboyish or not too girly at least, as long as their heterosexuality is not questioned. So there's quite a lot of girls, for example, who would be the toughest in the gym, but the moment they get dressed to go outside, they put their makeup on and they have a pretty dress on and etc. So they counter their masculinity with a emphasized femininity as well. So it's really an interplay between all these different <laughs> characteristics that we that we identify as masculine or feminine. So how do young women craft religious and gendered subjectivities? through their bodily practice in kickboxing. So you might say actually the choice of doing kickboxing is already done, right? So you already choose to not 
participate in ballet or Thai bow or like this fitness kickboxing, but they very very specifically choose to go to a kickboxing gym that is uh, that is run by a professional kickboxer that is known for professional kickboxing, that has uh, full contact sparring as part of their kickboxing practice. So they already choose this this sport that is seen as masculine because it's violent in a way, right? So that does something already, but within that practice. They do negotiate those boundaries. So in what way can I embrace my masculinity in a way and at the same time do it in a way that that I still keep close uh, to my femininity or my status of being a good woman and a good Muslim woman. And you, you see that happening within the kickboxing practice, right? So there are negotiations of what what do I participate in and what do I not participate in? So I do have to say, maybe I do have to stress that, that women-only kickboxing is mainly recreational kickboxing so there are some women who who want to be competitive kickboxers but the majority do uh, do not so they actually are there to have a hobby find a space of community etc so they also negotiate what they do and do not want to do right so there are women for example who choose not to spar full contact either because they don't want to mess up their pretty faces, like that was as literal quotes, or because they believe it's not permissible in Islam to be violent uh, towards another. So they embrace kickboxing, but in a way that works um, for them. And you also see like within the, the ways that the trainers actually talk about kickboxing in the trainers in, the, in, in a men's session or a mixed session compared to a women's session, you see that there's a lot of focus on, on sculpting the body. So the way that people talk about doing push-ups, for example, or the way that people talk about um, doing all this, this cardio exercise is very often about sculpting the body and not per se to uh, train the body to become a fighter. So you see there's, there's some differences there. And you might say, well, why does the trainer do that? But it's actually something that the girls also look forward to, right? So they also do kickboxing because they are interested in, in having a more fit, healthy, slim toned body. So that's part of their aspirations as well. So it's a negotiation and an attunement both between the women and the trainer. It's not just a, a, a gendered stereotype that, you know, the trainer or that these spaces is sort of cultivating for the women. No, I don't think so. No, it's, it's really an interplay indeed. Yeah. But if you look at like kickboxing, uh, how kickboxing is portrayed in um, in the media, both like recreational kickboxing and, and professional or, or competitive uh, kickboxing, you do say that there's this ideal woman that is portrayed, which, which is a slim woman, right? And a well-trained, fit body. There's quite some work on how competitive uh, women kickboxers are not able to get sponsorships if they don't comply with this idea of being sexy at the same time, right? So if you want to do, uh, if you want to be successful in these kinds of sports, you need sponsorships. If you want to be, if you want to have a sponsor in martial arts, then um, you have to be okay with being sexually um, objectified, basically. And these are also the images that many of these women see, and they push against that. So they would say, well, yes, I'm feminine, but I am also Muslim. So they they play with the color pink, for example. I mean, the color pink is very popular when it comes to gear. So pink gloves, pink chin guards, pink bandages to wrap your wrists. 
but they would not wear tank tops as um, as you would see in in, in uh, advertisements on on kickboxing, right? So they they do play with with femininity in that way, but in a way that still allows them to be a, a good Muslim woman at the same time. Part of the techniques and these practices that you highlight uh, that these women use to create sociability and spaces for sociability were both warm up and and stretching, but also you use this term in the space of, of slacking. Could you explain what sort of slacking is in the, in the context of women only kickboxing and how they use these practices, both in warm up, stretching and, and slacking to foster that sociability and that group formation? Right. Uh, yeah. Thank you for asking that, because it's something that I'm, I'm really interested in still. I think this is something um, I want to think about more and, and investigate more, I guess. So I think everyone who, who did sports at one point knows the concept of slacking or at least knows the concept of not giving it all not giving your full 100%. The Dutch word is called smokkelen or schoemelen, uh, which is very particular, I think. But it's, it's this idea of trying to get out of what you're actually supposed to do, right? Uh, which everyone knows. And actually, at one point, I was at a sport conference and I, um, I, I actually presented a paper on, on this topic, which inspired me to, you know, to write more about this. And I actually asked a question. So a conference full of sport anthropologists and sports, uh, sports scholars and I asked the question, who ever slacked off during practice? And everyone was sort of like giggling, but still like, like raising their hands. I mean, of course, everyone slacks off, right? Why I focused on it? Because I, I saw that it did something to how a group is formed. And I think why I encountered it is because I was already experienced in kickboxing before I went to this one specific gym with the younger girls in The Hague. So I, I had some years of kickboxing experience already. Um, but I found it really hard to connect to the girls. And it was partly because they were younger. So they had a different like, different way of, of, of going about, different way of socializing. I, I couldn't really participate in that. But I also had the feeling, yeah, that I was better than them in my kickboxing practice, right? Which is really hard. While, while in the other gym, I had sort of a more equal relationship because our kickboxing skills were also more equal. And I noticed that at one point um, when I thought, okay, I'm just, I'm just going to... Um, pretend that I'm not working hard, like I'm not going to have a good training for myself, but I'm actually just going along with whatever they do. It means that I am not following the training as I would normally do, or if I, as I would in the other gym. So I would actually join them in um, using the mirror to see where the trainer is, uh, so we could actually just relax for a moment and not like do the full exercise. And the moment I started doing that, I started seeing it also more. And I, for example, I, I started seeing people who were doing push-ups and they had to count to 20 um, and they would just count, but just leave their bodies on the ground without actually pushing up and just say one, two, three, whenever the trainer was not looking. And my first reaction was actually, so why, why do they not want to work out in this gym, right? So why are they not giving their best? But it actually worked for them because they were looking for new friends. They were looking for... Uh, companionship they were looking for uh, a way to have fun they still learned something of course they were still doing training but in a way that that, that works for them that reminds me of, of i think how some of the youth swimmers that i've worked with used me as a foil while standing on the pool deck to engage in their own slacking practices i think 
that have a bit of a chat with me instead of, you know, pushing a little harder and continuing the set. Right. So you were an excuse. Yeah. <laughs> as the ethnographer, yet yeah, we end up being the excuse for, for slacking. Oh, yeah. You know, we have to help the researcher and, and engage with them. And, and yeah, you know, they're here for a, a good purpose. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> I'll sort of move on to touching on you weave this throughout the book. And obviously, we've been talking a fair amount about women's gendered sexual subjectivities. You've also talked about their religious sensibilities and, and subjectivities itself as Muslim women. How do the young women kickboxers in your ethnography understand and navigate and negotiate piety in their physical practice of kickboxing? How do they relate, you know, their, their practice as Muslim women and Islam to something that seems very secular and sort of just a regular physical activity for Annas? Yes, I think there's there's two two parts of an, of an answer, I think. So maybe first of all, it's important to know that um, in the anthropology of Islam, which is uh, what I'm trained in, the field that I did, I work in as well, piety has become more and more important in recent decades, I should say, not only to show like Muslim self-cultivation per se, or, or Muslim religious uh, practice, but especially when, when it comes to piety among Muslim women, there has been an important shift towards understanding piety as part of agency. So the work of uh, Sabah Mahmoud has been very influential, both in, in my own work, but in, in other anthropologists of, of Islam as well that I, that I work with, where she looked at the pious movement, uh, women's movement in, in Egypt. She convincingly argued that that women's agency should not only be understood as a form, form of resistance against patriarchy, which is very often the, the way that, it, that, that agency is framed in, in Western feminist and uh, white uh, feminist discourses. So she actually demonstrated how the cultivation of piety can be a form of agency as well. And that has very much influenced my uh, my own work. Um, I would say, obviously, if, you re- if you've read the book, where I think, f- for me, it has been important to show that secularity, this secular modern sort of ideal, is not the form of agency that, uh, or is not the, the ideal that they strive for. So if you look at their agentic practices, you see that the selves that they construct, that they cultivate, are both based on ideas of what you might call secularity, and this idea of, of self-improvement, of an individual that strives to be their, their, their best uh, self, right? While also striving to be the best Muslim you can be at the same time. So for me, that has been very important because their kickboxing practice actually demonstrates that this divide between secularity and religion is artificial. Or, I mean, secularity is is always sort of constructed as juxtaposed to religion. It doesn't, the one, one ex- doesn't exist without the other, basically. So yes, they play with gender norms, and yes, they challenge expectations with regards to gender and sexuality, but they also disrupt these Western European parameters of secularity and religiosity by saying, well, we, we, you can be both at the same time. You can't distinguish the part of being a woman and the part of being a Muslim woman. So they really go against this idea that uh, Leila Abulukhat has called the, the idea of saving Muslim women, and right? um, this trope of the Muslim woman who is always seen as, as submissive. And they would actually say, well, we're not. <laughs> and I don't have to take off my hijab 
to demonstrate to you that I actually have agency. I have agency in in doing kickboxing while wearing the hijab or not wearing it, uh, but maybe wearing it at, at another moment, making these said that these own negotiations, both in regard to religion and all those other asp- aspects that are part of life as well. And I think for me, why I was so, why I'm so invested in this research topic is because I think it's really important to, if we want to understand religion, it's really important to look at non-religious practices and non-religious spaces, which might sound strange, (laughs) but to show religion in its full spectrum, you have to see how it lives in the everyday, in everyday life, which includes sports. I think that's such an important point that you make because so much of people's everyday practice is informed by their religious sensibilities, their religious practices, and their own piety. To separate the two seems like making an artificial binary, like like you point out between the juxtaposition between the secular and the religious. Yeah, absolutely. But that that is that it has a purpose, right? That people actually create that binary, which is um, yeah, divide populations <laughs> of part part of the population, and create this idea of backwardness. Basically, that is obviously something that we should counter with looking at at how these lives actually take shape. Mm-hmm. And could you give us uh, a few examples of the practices that the women engaged with to demonstrate their own piety within kickboxing? Obviously, participating in, in kickboxing is, itself is, and you mentioned uh, wearing the hijab while while kickboxing or deciding to take it off and, and wear it elsewhere. But maybe what are some of the other practices uh, that you noticed during your research? Yeah, I think one of the gyms I trained at was very particularly focusing on Muslim women, which means that they would, would blind the windows indeed, but they would, for example, would not play any music because some Orthodox Muslims might consider music to be haram, to be not permissible in Islam. So they would make it like as the, the threshold for participating is low, even for the women who are more strong in their in their religious practice it also means that most women actually do not wear the hijab while doing kickboxing right because there's no men there's no eyes from the outside so they could actually wear whatever they want and even in their everyday lives most of the women I think have at least half of the women but maybe even more would not wear a hijab in everyday life at all but having this space among women is I think the main way and then advertising that space as a halal space is also very important right so the this specific gym, for example, had a flyer where they had a halal stamp, which is used for food uh, most often. There's no such thing as halal sports, basically. Uh, but it is a way of saying, look, we, we make sure that uh, we have the right conditions for you to uh, feel safe and secure and practice in a way that fits your requirements. That's one way. Another way is, I guess, uh, there's a lot of discussion about clothing, what to wear, what not to wear. I have the feeling that uh, the, the the body is covered more, even though there's no male eyes. Uh, they would still very often wear leggings under their shorts, for example, or long sleeve shirts. They would make sure they don't have cleavage uh, showing. Um, they would also make sure that other people were not, were not uh, showing cleavage, so they would correct uh, each other, for example. Yeah, what else? And I think for some women, even like kickboxing, which happens mainly 
in multicultural neighborhoods, even in neighborhoods where um, the main religion is Islam, that actually going to kickboxing is already a way of being part of this community, which allows for a more pious practice. So I have one example, for example, of a woman who converted to Islam and she switched from flamenco dancing to kickboxing by saying, well, I would choose a sport that is in a in a neighborhood and among a community of women that I that I want to belong to and something that is closer to my religious requirements because there is no music, no dancing, no flirting, no men. So I think those are the main ways that piety was constructed. That's brilliant. You give a lot of examples uh, throughout throughout the monograph. So that's a really good taste of um, some of what you've outlined in your research. I will save it for another time. Um, but we sort of talked a little bit about it uh, on the beach when we were walking along Schreiberinger. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was interested because you talk about being in the locker room uh, or changing with the women. Right. It's like, how do you how do you think about safeguarding and the ethical practice of being in a locker room with other young people or people who are are underage, particularly in a sporting context? I mean, for me, consent is an ongoing process, right? Especially because you you become so close to to these women and at one point you become friends with some of them and and they start to forget that you're a researcher and you really have to remind them that you're a researcher. And I, yeah, I I make sure that I I do that every now and then, right? As soon as someone says, oh, you're such such a good listener, I would sort of jokingly say, well, but you know that I write down everything, right? Just to remind them that, yes, I'm a friend, but I also write down things. In my monograph, I tried to focus on the adults, actually, the young adults. So most of the the quotes you'll see are from adults. If they're from minors, I made sure to talk to their parents as well. As for the locker room, where these very private conversations, basically, I write down almost everything, but when I use something... You have to check again, basically. So you have to check again with people. Okay, are you okay if I use this in my book or not? It means that some uh, that I've not used everything. Not, I've not used all of the data I have. It also means that in some cases, so for example, the, my chapter five, I think it is, is like one life story. I don't think that anyone would recognize those stories and would be able to relate that to one specific person that they know. So I think much like much of the consent happens actually in the writing phase as well. Yeah, it's, it's something that I've had to negotiate and navigate working with with youth swimmers because the mass majority of those that I worked with are, are under the age of majority. They're under 18 years old, right? They're not considered adults. And even according to AAA ethical guidelines and UK guidelines, those under you know 16 and older can give informed consent on their own. But even still, many of those that I was working with were still under under the age of 16 and anywhere between the age of mostly sort of 14 to, to 17. And I know that a lot of the the banter and the socialization that would go on amongst the youth would happen in the locker rooms afterwards. Yeah. Because that was a space and a time that they had just to themselves after practice without adults. And I never spent any time in the, in the locker rooms, specifically because A, they were underage and B, there's a lot of attention within competitive organized sport around safeguarding for children and youth, meaning that adults and coaches shouldn't be in changing room spaces. So it's balancing the sort of practices which those involved as volunteers or as as coaches are under the behest of the organizing bodies to follow those ethical guidelines, um, but also to try and balance my own ethical and moral sensibilities as an anthropologist 
and to try and understand the life worlds of these youth from their own perspectives, trying to balance the two and sort of being caught in in the middle. Yeah, I totally understand why you then would not be part of those locker room conversations. But yeah, you, you do miss out, right? <laughs> On the banter, mm -hmm. I guess. But at the same time, I mean, they're smart enough only to share with you whatever they want to share anyway. Yeah, exactly. I also <clears> had <throat> the feeling that sometimes uh, you could sort of feel when the consent of a 14-year-old would be more valid than a consent of an 18-year-old. It has to do with emotional intelligence or, or intelligence in general, I think. Yeah, completely agree. So I, I had one 18-year-old, which I, um, I have to talk to their parents to be sure. I just don't take it from, from them. Just not... Uh, not someone that was not able to consider the consequences of, of this, I guess. Yeah, another ongoing conversation, I guess. <laughs> yeah, something that uh, I don't think will will we'll ever be resolved. Um, but it's good to have these conversations and continuously negotiate that. Absolutely. This will throw you a final question. Yes, mine. What's next? Right. So I, I'm currently, uh, yeah, a Marie Curie uh, Global Fellow based at uh, University of California in uh, in Berkeley, where I'm very blessed to have a year to work on a new research project. And next year I will be at Leiden University again in the Netherlands, continuing this new research project, which is on still on Muslim women in sports, but I focus on running now. And the reason I do that is because I think that my main interest in running is the move from this very close private space that is created for Muslim women in particular to something that happens in public space, very open, a sport that is considered white middle class, which is considered a sport that actually leads to upward mobility. So I hope to expand my understanding of both processes of, of racialization in sports, racialization of Muslims in sports. But what I actually also hope to make time for is think more about uh, religion in sports. How does spirituality and religious belief how can that be part of sports? How is that part of sports? And why don't we talk about it, basically? And we know it is. We see also during the World Cup now, right? We see people praying on the field um, uh, in football, soccer. So you see that, that it's part of people's practice. But there's not a lot of work being done on the actual spiritual side of, um, of sports. So I hope that's something I can explore in, um, yeah, in these next two years. Fascinating. I'll be looking forward to hearing more about your research and, and checking in with uh, all your articles and conference papers that, that come out in the next few years. Hopefully we can uh, maybe do another conversation like this uh, in a couple of years' time when the next monograph comes out. <laughs> that will be wonderful. Looking forward to it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Yasmine. Thank you. That's it, me and yes mine. Today's episode was produced by me, with help from Matthew Fung. Subscribe to the Familiar Strange Podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, and all other familiar places. And don't forget to leave us a rating or review, with your likes-dislikes. It helps people find the show and helps make the show better. And if you'd like to support us, please check out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash thefamiliarstrange. Not the Strange Familiars, which is another fun podcast, just not ours. You can find the show notes, including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com. 
If you want to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to me or the other hosts of this program, email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com, tweet at TFS Tweets, or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Music by Pete Dabro. Special thanks to Nick Ferrelli, Will Grant, Martin Pierce, and Maud Rowe. Thanks for listening. See you in two weeks. Until next time, keep talking strange.